So, hey, Will. Hello. It's season three. We made it. It's 2021. We survived. <laughs> you ready for more film formally? I'm ready for more form than ever. All right. Hi, I'm Devin Scott. And I'm Will. Yeah, we're going to kick things off with a chat about film restoration and mastering for home video with Blake Blazingame. It's a subject close to our hearts. And if you also care about how cinema is exhibited, this is as essential as film formally gets. Welcome to film formally season three. Here we go. Let's do it. Season three. All right. Okay, today, folks, we're talking to Blake Blazingame. He's the film services manager at Duplitech. Blake, what is Duplitech? We started uh, primarily as a compression and authoring company. That's uh, what our 80% of our business is, but we did start getting to mastering about four years ago, so it's relatively new for us. Um, It's not something that we've been doing for 20 or 30 years, like e-film or photochem have been doing this for many, many years, so... They're well-versed in it. So we're pretty new to the game. Yeah, so what this means is that Blake works on home video releases, uh, including scanning and transferring prints, recoloring them, reconstructing cuts of films. He's done a lot of work with Shout Factory, among other home video labels. So we thought Blake would be a great person to talk to about how that works. Uh, There's a lot of people in those kind of cinephile communities out there who talk about home video releases and how accurate they are, how inaccurate they are, the audio visual quality. But it's not too often that we get a deep dive with somebody who actually works on them about how the whole process operates. So Blake, thank you for coming in to chat with us about that a little bit today. Thank you for having me. As far as you're concerned and your department goes, what's usually the first point at which you interact with a project on a technical level? Well, it could start at several different places. Um, Sometimes we'll just get a project in where the master has already been completed, but there's still a lot of dirt and scratches in there, so they'll want us to do additional cleanup on it. That could be anywhere from just removing the cigarette burns at real changeovers to doing a week or two weeks of work on the master just to clean it up and make it look nicer. Um, So sometimes we'll do that. Very often we'll do about 30 to 40 titles a year where it'll be strictly just digital restoration cleanup and nothing else. And then sometimes we'll get uh, the feature in in film elements and we'll have to go through sometimes a palette or two palettes of film, catalog everything in there, find what's the original negative if the original negative exists. Um, If there are any protection IP elements available that uh, we could use for transfer if the original negative is missing or not in good condition, we'll catalog any release prints we have, any audio masters, whether it's three-track mag or an optical track negative or um, something on uh, audio tape. So for those titles, last year we did about 75 to 80 titles where we transferred... uh, from original film elements. Just to safety us uh, uh, with redundancy, (laughs) I'm going to quickly say, so a negative is pretty much the film 
that was run through the camera. It's the original source of film, and it will usually have the highest amount of detail and information, if properly preserved, at least. Right. And a release print, for example, is uh, a print after it's gone through... Uh, the process of being reprinted from the negative and going through any photochemical process that it was going to do before being sent out to theaters in those release prints. So the release print will be a couple of what's called generations removed from the negative, and they'll typically have less information, less detail, and they can in some ways deteriorate, but can still be useful references or in some cases the best available source. Yes, exactly. Release print is about three generations removed from original negative. Some of your audience might already know this information, but for some that don't, like you said, the original cut negative is the best available version. It has the most latitude. The grain is the best resolve there. Um, It's the finest element to scan from. It's always going to be the sharpest. It's going to have the most image detail. Once you go to an IP, which is one generation removed from the element, that's also referred to as an interpositive, then there is actually quite a substantial amount of resolution loss between the original negative and the IP. Um, Some IPs are very dense and soft. Um, I've seen some IPs, uh, especially those that have been created within the last 20 years, that are a lot better. Those, the grain is managed pretty well. Color timing is good. The grain doesn't It's not exacerbated when you run it through a film scanner because one issue with running film um, and digitizing it is that whatever scanning system you use, you're always going to get some sort of sensor noise. And the high-end scanners, Laser Graphics Director is what we use, the Scanity Spirit, um, Northlight scanners, those are the best scanners. They have the less amount of sensor noise coming out of the image, but also takes a really, really long time to scan. And then you have some uh, scanners that can scan in real time, uh, such as the Laser Graphics Personal Scanner or the uh, Cintel Scanner, but those have a lot of sensor noise. So there are ways to try to work around that, including scanning HDR, but those take a long time to take care of. So we usually either scan original ne- original negative or interpositive. It's very rare that we'll scan a dupe neg or a release print, but sometimes that is all that's available. So the dupe neg is created from the IP, and then from that, uh, the release print is created from the dupe neg. Some of the work that we've done for Shout Factory is uh, we've helped them process uh, the Roger Corman uh, collection that they uh, purchased the New Horizons Library, which I believe was from the early 70s to the early 90s was when that was active. So we've received the original negative and have done a 4K scan of that, have gone to if the mag is if the mag exists, that'll be the best audio source we'll go in do an audio transfer of that at 48 kilohertz. And then from there, we go through the process of cleaning the film, checking to make sure that the film doesn't have vinegar syndrome. If it does, then we isolate that and put that into what is called our vinegar vault. And then we check for other issues, make sure the film isn't brittle. We check for shrinkage. If it's an original negative, we want to make sure that cement splices at the cuts are secure and they're not weak. Sometimes we find release prints where we have to transfer that because that's the only good source that's available. The negative will be missing. There's no good IP or no dupe neg. 
In some cases, release prints are in very poor condition. I've seen situations where the tape splices are falling apart, where there's film tears that need to be repaired. I've even seen cases where uh, the film is held together by paper tape and staples uh, that we've had to take out of the film and then repair it properly. Once that step is done um, and we've cleaned the film, then we'll scan it in at uh, 4K resolution. Or if uh, the client requests it, we could also do a 2K scan. Uh, that will scan into either a DPX or a TIFF image sequence. We do DPX, either 10-bit or 16-bit scan. Sometimes we'll scan the perfs, including uh, the entire image uh, area, uh, just in case there's a shot that's difficult to stabilize. It's good to have the perforations uh, uh, available in the image so we could use that as a tracking point. Scanning will sometimes take anywhere between one day if it's a 2K scan. Um, sometimes it could take up to two weeks if we're doing a 4K scan and we're doing it at HDR, which is not high dynamic range in this case. It's a high density range, which allows us to utilize more of the dynamic range in the image by knocking out some of the sensor noise. We'll do that, and then once that process is done, we'll go into digital cleanup. There are many, many steps that I could go into in greater detail. And just to quickly define another term, um, you mentioned bit depth, which is a concept I, I really love as a cinematographer um, and a colorist. <laughs> uh, you mentioned 10-bit and 16-bit, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but this refers to the amount of graduations between a fully saturated pixel and a fully unsaturated pixel in each of the color and luminance channels. Mm -hmm. So for example, a 10-bit pixel, it's actually exponential, so it's 2 to the power of 10, so that'll have 1,024 or 1,023 if you start at zero, um, graduations. And 16-bit will have something like 64,000 graduations. So the higher your bit depth, the more basically nuanced and detail you can capture in that color when it's quantized. Yep. It's not technically oversampling, but why might we want to use a huge bit depth uh, where a 10-bit, for example, won't do? Well, 10-bit usually does do the trick, especially if you're doing an SDR grade. It is, in essence, overkill to always scan in 16-bit, but you definitely do want to scan at 16-bit if you're doing an archival preservation at 4K, then it absolutely makes sense to do that, especially if you're doing an HDR grade. Then it's almost necessary that you scan at 16-bit. That's interesting, because I, I mostly shoot at 12-bit these days, so I'm right in the middle. <laughs> yeah, most, most digital cameras capture at 12-bit, so... Most good ones. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I still, I mean, I still have to sometimes explain to my students why their images look not the best when they shoot eight bit. So you know. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, especially when you're eight bit log, which means you're using only like half of your eight. Anyways, I could talk about that for ages. Well, eventually, that's what you see. Everything on Blu-ray is uh, finally at eight bit. Back when I was transferring sixteen mil film, most of the scans I color correct as a colorist I have this kind of element to them is um, the idea of a flat scan. Right, A scan where you're not applying sharp S-curves, uh, mm -hmm. you're scanning it in a way that is greatly lower in contrast or saturation than the intended image. Um, for those of you who might not be familiar with kind of a typical film scan, when you shoot a film and you, you project it, it looks, you know, assuming you've developed it and using the usual methods, it looks like you would expect film to look. 
However, the vast majority of films when scanned into a professional scanner, the files you get from that do not resemble how the final film is supposed to look in the least. Um, they look way lower contrast, right? It looks like it's almost shot through a fog. Um, the saturation is all, you know, it, it is very muted. Mm-hmm. And um, this is actually the source of a lot of confusion, I find, where that kind of becomes in people's heads, that's the way the film should look. Um, when in fact, that is made with the expectation of then doing certain operations to it to bring it back to a, to a version of the film that represents, you know, the the celluloid version. What are the benefits of doing that? And what can we do to bring the film back to its kind of original color profile? Well, whenever you do scan into a scanner, you're going to scan into their raw image sequence. So we'll scan at a log uh, DPX, uh, log color space. And it's the same, not, the same idea as uh, capturing into an ARRI camera. You want to have all that latitude. You want to have all the detail that is there in the film image itself. A lot of which has never seen, you've never seen it properly when finally projected into print. But there's no reason to lose all that detail in the image. Uh, That can always be properly timed in color correction. So by scanning a flat log image, I'm giving my colorist the ability to feel free and not to have to fight the image. So my colorist always wants a very flat file where all the image data is contained, and then it's up to him to add the contrast, balance the blacks, do a white balance, and then get the skin tones to the proper place. And I also think it's worth touching on the the kind of the inherent difference between how film, for example, deals with highlights and how digital deals with highlights. Because when you fully saturated the luminance channel, for example, or all the color channels of your you know, digital image, it clips. Uh, and that yeah. means that there's a hard line at, at the white point of your image where, where you're losing that detail completely. Uh, it no longer exists. Um, film doesn't do that in the same way. Am I grossly incorrect in saying that part of the reason why we uh, scan, quote unquote, flat or in a log image mm-hmm. um, is to prevent baking in that, that element of the digital image uh, that doesn't match kind of how the film looked? Yes and no. Some release prints, you're already going to get highlights that are going to be blown out and you won't see any image detail in the sky but we'll still scan it flat so we'll still make sure that we have all all the highlight detail and all the shadow detail within a scan we don't want to do any hard clipping within our scan and unfortunately i've seen a lot of uh, scans that have been done and there is clipping there in the raw scans and sometimes i'll reject it and say no i'm sorry you got to go back and rescan this this isn't something that we want to have to work from and fight yeah <laughs> as far as I'm, I'm just so curious about this as far as the the other end of the spectrum goes the shadows is sensor noise something that we can pick up on for example home video releases from those scanning machines or is that something that is has that ever been a major issue in the final product one example is uh the current criterion release of paris texas it was um scanned on this old 2k scanner in like the early I think mid 2000s, uh, that version has a certain noise kind of pattern in the shadows that mm-hmm. doesn't really exist on the newer 4K scan, which has not been released in North America, which is a shame. Is what I'm seeing there perhaps sensor noise in the old 2K scan? I can actually, I have the criterion behind me. I can look at what they scanned <laughs> it on. But, um, or, or might that just be uh, a scanner's inability to properly render that no- that film grain? you've kind of answered the question. It it is both. Uh, It is sensor noise, and the reason why it exists is simply because of the scanner's inability 
to render the film grain properly. Whenever an image is very dense, the scanner is going to have to boost the gain, essentially, to capture that image and be able to get all that shadow detail in the blacks. And that's basically what you get is sensor noise. Um, It kind of has a flickering effect to it. So if you notice any flickering in the blacks, that's what sensor noise is. It's also sometimes uh, shows up as a kind of a Bayer sensor pattern, so it'll look like a crosshatch pattern on the image. Um, So if you see any crosshatch pattern, then that's sensor noise. And it's simply the result of today it's an inferior scan. Um, The way to approach that is to do noise reduction on the image. But film purists are very concerned about uh, the use of noise reduction on transfers nowadays. Um, Some people don't want it at all. I do think that some grain management is necessary to mitigate any issues that could uh, happen in compression. But I don't go to the point where I'm smearing the image. I'm never going to do something to the extent of what was done on Predator or on some of the Indiana Jones movies where they removed all the grain and then regrained it later on. Wait, um, what? Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. Not Raiders, I hope. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh that's, that's, that's heartbreaking. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that's actually a, a pretty common process to yeah. remove the grain and then add grain back. Uh, well, which, I do that all the time on the films I shoot digitally. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll denoise the digital noise and add film grain so people well, think it's on film. That makes sense, yeah, if yeah. you want to do film emulation grain. But it's just something that Shout Factory and all the other different labels that we work for, it's something that we just don't do. If I don't see a reason to manage the grain, then I won't do anything at all. But sometimes a slight touch of grain management is better than doing nothing. It just helps with compression later down the line because otherwise you can introduce compression artifacts um, that you don't want to see on a blu-ray so in the end it's to try to create a cleaner and better product for uh, the market would the calculus perhaps be a bit different when we're dealing with theatrical exhibition versions where for example a you know a a blu-ray for those wondering average bit rate is anywhere from like 20 to high 20s uh sometimes even teens uh megabits per second but a DCP is most are authored at around just under 200. So you have to deal with a lot less compression artifact and also better chroma subsampling. Yay! Would would the kind of grain reduction uh, calculus be different for a DCP? Or is that kind of totally out of your... My purview. Yeah. Purview. Um, yeah. I, I don't typically master DCPs. Pretty much everything I do is for home entertainment. So I think that's a great question. I think for a DCP... Again, there still is going to be a lot of compression. You're going from, you know, a master file. If it's a TIFF image sequence, it's multiple terabytes. If it's a ProRes XQ file, then you're still talking about over a terabyte of media. And then to compress that down to a JPEG uh, 2000 DCP, that's going down to about 130 gigabytes for a two-hour movie. So it's still comparable to doing the same kind of compression that you would to a ProRes file. Yeah, I think that there still does need to be some sort of grain management for um, theatrical distribution. So I think the same theory applies to both. We're talking about how it's best to work off the negative and to work off of all the detail, grain, the highlights, the shadows, 
that you can get from a negative compared to a release print. But what we've discussed is that this does raise the question of, well, if it looks better than the theatrical print, is it actually accurate to the film uh, mm-hmm. as it was released slash as it was intended, etc.? I mean... An example is, I remember Steven Spielberg, when the Jaws Blu-ray came out, he said that it looks better now than it ever did in theaters in 1975. What are your thoughts on that, on the question of fidelity and it release prints and negatives and the question of accuracy to the original for the purposes of home viewing? It's a very good question. I haven't seen too many complaints about 4K 16-bit scan from an original negative with new color timing, as long as it <laughs> accurately represents what was uh, shown theatrically. Yeah, you're go- you're going to get better fidelity. You're going to get much better resolution than what was seen in a release print. So very often, what will happen is if you have a director or DP supervising the transfer, you'll find uh, situations where you'll see matte lines that were not necessarily present on a theatrical print, but they're present now. So they might want to send it out to a visual effects company and have them do additional touch-up work just to clean it up. I have had a couple situations come up where uh, the director would see um, the fish line from holding a prop in the shot, (laughs) and they wanted to have that removed and requested that it was painted out. So that does happen. It's just the nature of doing a high-resolution scan that arguably is going to give you better latitude and better detail than what you saw in the original film prints. So I think there is a goal to try to match what the original release looked like without being unfaithful to it, but you're going to see some some errors potentially get introduced uh, as a result of doing a high-resolution scan that might not have been visible originally. You mentioned while we were prepping uh, this kind of occurring during the process of remastering uh, Snow Falling on Cedars. Pretty sure that was uh, scanned. It was scanned at 4K. I think it was from the original camera negative. Uh, That was done uh, on the Universal lot, and then they sent us the 4K log scans um, to do the rest of the uh, downstream processing. At first, we took a stab at it. Uh, the director, Scott Hicks, is based out of Australia, so he didn't supervise a transfer on site, but Bob Richardson, the cinematographer, who was nominated for an Oscar for his work, did come into the studio to work on it uh, with us for a day. Initially, we uh, referred to a universal DVD transfer of the movie that was made uh, subsequently after its theatrical release, because the director said that is the way the movie should look. We extracted the DVD got that source into our color bay, then tried to time to match it. Looked very sepia-toned, which was not what the director wanted. He said in his uh, notes to us that it should have silvery highlights and very, very deep blacks. It should almost look black and white. Um, It should be a high-contrast image and sort of dreamlike. So we had color-corrected it, sent it to him, and he said, no, 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 that's all wrong. I need to get Bob in there to work with you guys so that he can take a stab at it. So Bob came into the color bay, 
spoke to me and my colorist. He showed up 45 minutes early. He was supposed to show up at 7 a.m. and he showed up at 6.15 a.m. <laughs> this is a cinematographer thing, yeah. I think. Yeah. Uh. And we, we, we barely had our eyes open, but we were ready to work through it. So it was a 14-hour grading session sitting with him. And, wow. Then, um, wow. and then he took the files and uh, he and his team at Harbor Picture Company uh, did the finishing work on it and put the final touches. But Wow, um, that's, that's dedication. Yeah, but basically we did go through and we reworked the entire movie. He said that basically the only way to know how this movie should look like would be to screen a release print that was uh, directly timed from the original negative or get an answer print. Otherwise, he said, I have no idea what it was supposed to look like 20 years ago. (laughs) And he said, I would shoot this movie completely differently now than I would have back then. So I'm going to make some changes. Mm. And he definitely made some changes. And I I do want to say that to his benefit, I did see Snow Falling on Cedars when it came out theatrically. I was 10 years old, so I probably don't remember it as well as I should, but um, I feel that the new transfer is, in fact, very close to what I remember seeing theatrically. Um, it has that same evocative feel to it. Um, so he did a great job, but did a lot of nodes uh, to get it where he wanted to. I mean, there were many, many shots where it would be six or seven nodes before he would finally be happy. So we had to really crank away at it to get it to where he wanted it but seems like he was pretty happy uh, once we got the files back from harbor picture company they probably did some more work to about five percent of the shots but pretty much left it uh, where we had it another interesting thing about bob richardson is that he hates film grain he doesn't want to see it and he <laughs> yeah. wants to see it scrub clean so that was uh one instance where i didn't go all the way like they would with Predator, but I did uh, run the temporal noise reduction pretty hard on that one. But this man shot JFK. <laughs> he also shot Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control, which is insanely yeah. noisy. Um, <laughs> but um, one anecdote I like is just uh, apparently he, he's never been happy with the look of Casino because it was shot in Super 35 and not anamorphic, and Super 35 is too grainy and thin uh, mm. for his standards. So even like something as beautiful as Casino still rubs in the wrong way. And I empathize. Like There's certain things like... You know, no one cares, but I care. <laughs> so. Yeah, you, you. Well, Devin, you just. Uh, we'll we'll be doing probably a podcast episode about this, but you just revised just our old movie, <laughs> one of our old movies, and it was just like, okay, I would color this differently today, but I'm still gonna kind of reference what it looked like back then and try not to move too far away. So today, this morning, I came up with a theory of mind as to how I can justify that. I'm hiring my future <laughs> self as a colorist. Right. <laughs> um, um, we'll do an episode about that. Yeah. One thing you have to understand about directors and cinematographers coming in is that they're going to want to correct their old past mistakes. That's just human (laughs) nature. So, you know, anytime you see a new release come out and it's been director or cinematographer approved, I don't think that it's safe to assume that it is going to look exactly the way it originally looked. Even if uh, they make very tasteful changes and only update a couple of shots with some visual effects, there are going to be some variances there. It's it's just human nature. I think this is really hitting 
close for a lot of us right now because the I don't know if you've been following the new Wong Kar Wai box set and the controvert the I use controversy in air quotes because it's like six of us. Mm-hmm. Dozens of us. Yeah, dozens. Wong Kar Wai is uh, heavily revising some of his past films. Um, for example, Happy Together isn't getting a new cut because parts of the negative weren't available and he only wanted to use the negative. All the films are getting new credits. Um, in the Mood for Love is getting a quite significant new color grade. Um, it's much more green now. Fallen Angels is getting a new aspect ratio, which is an interesting one. Mm-hmm. These questions are really, they're on a lot of our minds because uh, I think Wong Kar Wai is kind of, I don't want to say stumbled into, but he's kind of t- hit a lot of hot buttons at once uh, for a lot of the cinephile community. Have you ever encountered kind of a director or any creative, you know, the clout to say it, asking for like any major revisions that didn't end up being implemented or things where it was just like too far? Uh, luckily, no, not yet to date. Um <laughs> I, I've yet to experience that. You wouldn't want that. to change Fallen Angels aspect ratio to 2.35 to what I take. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it, it, if the director said that the movie was never shown properly in its original aspect ratio, what he meant for it to be shot in, then I can respect that and oh yeah, put in a different aspect ratio. That doesn't bug me as much as uh, radical changes to color timing or especially re-editing the context of the movie and changing the story and adding visual effects shots that shouldn't be in there. (laughs) Yeah, sometimes a film not only becomes a filmmaker's film, it also becomes the audience's film. That's especially true with Star Wars. It's especially true with The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And movies like that, you just... You want to preserve the original nature of the movie. You don't want to go in and make a ton of changes so i i think that's something that filmmakers should keep in mind is how important a movie's legacy is to its audience because that's really what matters in the end yeah one car wise um kind of justification for that was to paraphrase him um we've changed and so should the movies essentially <laughs> and i don't know <laughs> I'm, i i love one car wide but Oh, sorry. Actually, actually, b- before I forget, sorry. I-, I have the book here from Paris, Texas. It was transferred um, in HD on a Spirit Data Cine. That's all it says. Well, uh, Data Cine is, uh, I guess, a earlier generation of what the film scanners are now. So it's better than doing a Telecine transfer, where you're going to get that kind of uh, horizontal wobble. Yeah, which. Believe it or not, uh, th- there's still a large amount of the Paramount Library that still has to be properly transferred. It still looks like a lot of their titles were uh, transferred on Telecine, and that's all they have for HD Masters. Mm. So Paramount has been going back, and they've been doing 4K scans from their original negatives. So there are newer titles in their library that have been freshly remastered, but a lot of their library is basically untouched and. They've got a lot of work to do. The Exorcist 3. I imagine will be, this will just touch on a lot of things about the process, but like Blake, someone who kind of knows about The Exorcist 3 and who you kind of know, but doesn't know all that much about you and what you do, comes up to you at a party and says, hey, I heard you're doing some uh, weird thing about that uh, that Exorcist sequel, Exorcist 2, 3, what is it? And you're like, uh, what, what's all that about? What's what's this Exorcist 3 disc you're doing? What was that, Blake? It's funny you mentioned that. I actually worked <laughs> on the Exorcist 2 as well um, oh. for Shout Factory. I, 
uh, we put out two cuts of the movie. One was the, I guess, the U.S. premiere cut, an extended version that was 117 minutes, and then we put out a 100-minute version that was its initial home video release, which was completely different. I don't think any of them is accurate to what the original theatrical cut is, but that was a a chore in itself to try to reconstruct those uh, properly from what we had. Uh, we got scans for both films, and then we had to do some sort of compositing together from the best available sources to get the best-looking version of the movie out for both cuts. But to Exorcist 3's point, it's been well-known over the years that... Uh, William Peter Blatty did not get to release the cut of the movie that he wanted. Exorcist 3 was based on his uh, novel Legion, um, and then he adapted that into a script and shot essentially this movie Legion that was never supposed to have an exorcism scene at the end of the movie. Once he showed the work print, or his first cut of the movie, to Morgan Creek, they decided that they were very unhappy with it, that they couldn't market this as an exorcism movie, so they asked him to go back and reshoot the film. Originally, he wanted Jason Miller in the role for Father Karras, but at the time, Miller was unavailable. I believe he was shooting another movie at the time, so they recasted the role with Brad Dourif in it. So the original production, the original shoot, only had Brad Dourif's role in it as Father Karras. It was a really a great performance uh, to see um, in the dailies. It's a shame that the original release did not show Dourif's performance in its entirety. Once the studio opted to go for reshoots, Jason Miller was available, and I believe they wanted to reshoot Dourif's entire role with Jason Miller, but Blatty kind of fought back against that and said, I really liked what I saw in Dourif's performance. I don't want to get rid of it. So he found a way to rewrite the script to create this hybrid role where Jason Miller plays the person, Father Karras, but uh, Brad Dourif plays the embodiment of the Gemini killer, which is possessing Father Karras. They reshot the movie. Um, they rebuilt the set. So instead of having brick walls, it would have um, padded walls um, that would be more typical of what you would see in a mental ward. In my opinion, the film doesn't have quite the same eerie effect that um, it should have. So what happened was uh, Cliff McMillan and Shout Factory went digging through pallets of film to... Uh, try to find the lost footage from the original shoot. Um, and what they did end up finding was some original negative footage from that original shoot, which they transferred, color corrected, and then brought it into the editing room, and we were going to use the VHS dailies as the audio source. But what we soon found out was all the footage that we had that was original negative was basically bloopers. Mm. Any any bad takes was pretty much all we had. All the good takes were not available on film anymore. So what you see in the director's cut of Legion is you'll see a handful of materials that were were transferred from a 35mm black and white work print. I believe there are a couple of shots in the opening sequence that were taken from that. Um, and there's also a deleted scene um, in the morgue where Father Karras's body, I guess 
gets inhabited by the demon and comes back to life. That was cut from the movie because uh, we initially put that in there and then Blatty reviewed it and said, you know, that scene just doesn't work for me. We need to get rid of it. So that's why it it's present there as a deleted scene, but it's not there at the beginning of the film. So, yeah, there was a 35 millimeter work print. There was some negative footage, which I think there's one shot in a library, uh, an establishing shot that pans across the room. That was also from that footage. And most of the footage, we just didn't have good takes of it. So we had to resort to the VHS uh, dub tapes to get all that footage and reconstruct those scenes. And I think total, it ended up being about 34, 35 minutes of uh, footage that um, is new to the Legion cut that's not in the theatrical version. Wow. (laughs) 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 I have have nothing smart to say about that. It doesn't, and that's that's wonderful and and intense. Yeah, it's it's, uh, such a good example of one of these, uh, uh, like, kind of, not, it's not a lost film because the film obviously has always existed in some form, but a film that uh, where there's this version of the film that's almost like uh, mythical for fans of the film or of a certain genre or of a certain milieu. So on a project like that, where um, Blatty himself was involved, I imagine that uh, considering you're the technical manager, um, you're not uh, you're not exactly like booking Blatty. But what does it look like for Blatty to get involved in something like that? And exactly, like, what are his points of contact with you and uh, with the label? I'm just mm-hmm. curious because it, it, I think people rightly think of a label and a filmmaker as these two completely separate entities. Right. Um, but there's a lot logistically involved in them not only coming in, but in them being able to communicate with you. Well, Blatty did view the cut of the movie that was put out on the Shout Factory disc, and he did get his input on it, um, but he wasn't there in the editing room. Our basis for reconstructing it was working from a shooting script that was published by Mark Kermode, who was a consultant on this project, along with uh, William Peter Blatty. So that shooting script was our template for reconstructing the cut of the movie. So whenever we did have footage from the VHS dailies or from the theatrical cut, we tried to adhere to the shooting script as closely as possible. That was our guide um, to get us through editing everything and seeing how it should be presented. So it's not perfect, but I would say that 98% of what we needed was there. So for Blatty, he only had two requests. I think when McMillan got in touch with him and told him that they were going to work on his director's cut of the movie, he was in his late 80s, and I think this was about a year before he passed away, he said, oh, well, I'm actually pretty happy with the theatrical cut. He said, I only have two requests. I want the opening scene to be in black and white, because it was supposed to be in black and white, I never got that. And then there was one shot of a sex worker in the uh, police office, um, about 10 minutes in the movie, where she says to a detective dress appropriately he said i love that can you throw that in there um which we initially didn't have that in there because it's just jarring to cut to vhs footage and then cut back out but we had that in the dailies and we included that at his request those were really his only two requests otherwise he said he was pretty happy with what was in the theatrical cut i don't know what happened if his uh intentions over time just kind of 
changed or faded away, but Kermode did view the cut as well and consulted on that and had a lot of Mark great Kermode. notes for us. Mark Kermode, yeah. Yeah. And he no, said there's that, no question in my mind which Kermode you meant. <laughs> <laughs> um, he, he said that we actually uh, did a very good job. Um, he thought it was a remarkable piece of work and that it gave a real sense to what Bill was aiming for initially with his Legion cut. It took about two weeks of work to reconstruct everything, and there wasn't as much coverage as you think there would be. There were some takes where you know you couldn't get everything in its entirety and you were forced to cut away to a certain reaction shot i'm sure that i could go back and mess around with it for a couple more months and probably put out a different version of it but what we put out is actually extremely faithful to what's in the shooting script Drag me to hell, um because uh this was a uh, new hd master that was um that was of a film that already had a fully finished DI, which is a digital intermediate. For listeners, that just means the whole film has been scanned and then it is finished digitally, not via film. And this is the vast, vast majority of films these days, even those shot on film, um, with the exception of like some Paul Thomas Anderson and Quentin Tarantino films. And I think Christopher Nolan still does photochemical finish on... He like, does, yes. Yeah. What's what's that like? Did you basically take the DI files that they already had and then reworked those, or did you go back to the original film elements? Um, how was how was Drag Me to Hell accomplished? We did not go back to the original film elements. We worked from the DI elements. I think what they told us was that they had the DPXs on LTO and they had JPEG two thousands, and that's pretty much all they had archived with the exception of the ProRes of the unrated cut. So there was no ProRes archival master of the theatrical cut that existed. So we requested the DPXs. I think those were 2K, if I'm not mistaken. I think it was a 2K DI. Mm. And uh, went back and noticed that they were in an XYZ color space. So they weren't in log. It wasn't an ideal starting point to work from no matter what we could do trying to use different LUTs we couldn't get it to look right so we did have to go through and do a shot by shot regrade um, using the unrated uh, master as a color reference and we got it very very close you know there are a couple minor slight differences but overall the palette's pretty much the same I can't imagine the amount of attention to detail that would take for a feature film. My last experience was was just a seven minute short film that I had to regrade the you know lifeguard, and I, it took me like three passes to realize that I had done like eye tracking, for example, <laughs> and you know little things like that are so easy to fall through the cracks. Yeah, no. Luckily, we didn't come across anything that was too challenging. It was a it was a pretty straightforward process to regrade it. There's a possibility that we could have spent hundreds of hours trying to fine-tune stuff, but it's just not necessary. I find it really interesting, especially regrading old, like, early 2000s DIs. Um, that's how the last two Lord of the Rings films were just done, where they mm. they actually did a scan of the film out with VFX baked in and everything, um, and then totally regraded those. So it's, it's fascinating because the color grade feels much more modern. It lacks a lot of those early 2000s ticks um, of very early digital color grading. It has a very different feel to it as a result, even though the grain structure and everything are so early 2000s in terms of the DI technology. Will, do you mind if we segue into grain structure? I don't mind at all. Blake, do you know about the Lord of the Rings discs? I have seen screenshot comparisons between the old transfers and the new. So it does look like they timed out some sort of green 
cast to it. Oh yeah, the fellowship. The, old, the fellowship. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, they're yeah, weird. So. Like I'd say, about five percent of the films ish. I'm pulling the number of my hat, but it's a small amount, but it's noticeable. They've done DNR to like very specific shots hmm. to the extreme. It's some of the worst I've ever seen. But then the rest of it looks fine. I I don't know. I understand. So I mean, with grain management, as I'd like to call it, I it is a shot by shot process. Typically, I don't try to do a global setting on everything um but you know you could apply a global node and then kind of fine-tune it shot by shot but um part of the problem you have with grain is really on dupe shots any optical dissolve is always going to have more grain because that is essentially if at the very least a third or fourth generation element that you're looking at this is why like optical credit sequences often look much worse than the rest of the film. Um, right. I just watched The Silent Partner and the opening is a credit sequence and it just, it looks I was like, well, this they had horrible elements to work with. I mm. it's a shame, but then as soon as the credits end, it's like sharp as attack. Right. Well, I mean, that's that's just the whatever is cut into the IP or the negative that they use. Sometimes the opticals optical printers at the time were you know, if you had a very good optical printer, then you would get a good result. And some opticals are beautiful from the time. And sometimes they were run through a very cheap printer and they look like garbage. Mm. Um, it was just a matter of budget at the time. So we could spend a lot of time going in and cleaning up optical shots just to match the quality of the rest of the production. And in fact, a lot of time in digital restoration is spent cleaning up those shots. But yeah, for grain management, my motive is to try to not overdo it um, and sometimes not touch the grain at all if I don't see a purpose. Usually when I'm doing a scan from an original negative, very rarely uh, do I go in and do any grain management. Um, if I do, it'll be to a handful of dupe shots where our quality control has flagged it or I flagged it during our production process. But yeah, I... I'm very hesitant to mess with grain. Now, it, it's a touchy subject for some people, and oh, yeah. our, our clients take notice of it. So we no one we will try, ever forget Patton. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We we try we try to be respectful of the grain, um, but yeah, th there are definitely cases where you have to go in and uh, apply some temporal noise reduction and uh, try to manage it a little better, and you can wipe the grain clean and then use that as an opacity filter and then just kind of dial it in a little bit just so you're managing it but there's still the presence of grain um there in the film image i remember um just as a quick non sequitur but when the Werner herzog box sets were coming out oh i forget which title it was but one of the titles bfi in their box set had two versions of a herzog film but they only had good scans of the title sequence of one of those two versions. It was two different languages. I think it was probably German and English. But they had reference elements for the English version, I think. And so they ended up recreating the title sequence, like BFI and I think James White. It's They just like did a digital recreation of the original font on the title card, placed it over the negative footage, and then just work the hell out of like matching the grain, um, matching the jitter on the on the title card, trying to get like the even like little details of halation on the print, mm -hmm. just everything to make it as accurate as possible. But when you see that pr that title card, you're looking at an entirely digital title card, 
And I, 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 I bring that anecdote up because I think it's an interesting kind of meeting point for a lot of the ideas and issues in digitally scanning and preserving and dealing with these materials. I, I've seen very often some restoration houses will go in and completely redo the opening title sequences to the point of just cleaning up one frame and using that as a still image and then regraining it mm. and dissolving from one still image into the other. That's not the process that I like to do. Um, I try to be faithful to the original film elements. You know, if there's some flicker right. in there, so be it. If I if I can't get that flicker out, sometimes there's color breathing, so be it. Sometimes I there are just some issues that are either too time intensive to fix, or they're just not fixable, and it's okay to have imperfections in there. That's how you know it's a film transfer, after all. Circa when I was getting my 16 mil film scan in like 2011, um, the conventional wisdom was that to faithfully recreate. The actual texture of the image with the scan, it would have to be 2K for 16 mil, 4K for 35 mil, 6 to 8K for 70 mil. Why is that? And has that thinking evolved? And was it ever totally true? I don't think it's wrong. I don't think that you're going to get a ton of added resolution in the film element by doing a 4K scan as opposed to a 2K scan of a 16 or super 16 millimeter project. Um, I think it is good to oversample, um, especially if you're going to um, do a 4K release, then it's absolutely imperative. Um, ideally, with 35mm films, I think if you're scanning the entire image, um, including perfs, it's ideal probably to get 5.5K resolution uh, to get a proper 4K master of it. What I find is that really 2K, for the most part, is sufficient enough for a 16mm scan. And I think that, from what I've seen, 4K is overkill. Specifically with 35mm IP elements, I've done 2K and 4K scans, and then blown them up, side-by-side side them, and shown them to other people and say, can you tell me which one's 2K and which one's 4K? They can't even tell the difference, even with the 700% blow-up on the image. So... Yeah, it's um, it fascinates me the, the, like the specific edge cases you can point to. Like the only way I can often tell when uh, like a film is being projected, for example, in two K and four K, is just looking at the aliasing on the title cards. Right, mm -hmm. that's to me a giveaway. But then I look at a live action shot, and it's virtually impossible to tell unless I'm sitting in the first row and it's a giant screen. Right. So oversampling. Um, I want to kind of delve into that because it's it's not a it's not something that I think most people know about um, coming from a cinematography background. Oversampling is usually how we get over the inherent drawbacks of the Bayer sensor area, which is what most digital cameras are uh, these days. Bayer sensors don't see the world like a, for example, like a color film stock would. The red, green, and blue pixels are separated out on a physical array, which basically means that you're going to get artifacts and less especially color detailed than you would think at a certain resolution. So the conventional wisdom is on a video camera, you want to oversample by like 20 to 30%. It's why the Ari Alexa originally filmed in 2.8K, but was intended for a 2K downscale down the line. How does this apply to film scanning and why, why do we do it to films? I should say that very often oversampling isn't done on film scans. Uh, film scans are either done at 2K or 4K full aperture. 
So it's not done to the scale that I think it should be. 2K full aperture scan is the industry standard, 2048 by 1556. So once you do blow up to get to the film image, you're actually not getting um, something that is true HD. It's closer to something like 720. Yeah, I, I don't know why oversampling isn't done more often. It should be. I tried to, whenever I'm doing a 2K scan, I try to do the maximum available uh, image resolution. So I'll do like 2100 by 1600 edge to edge on the frame. And then I'll do 4.3K when I'm doing a 4K scan. So that helps a lot. Yeah, oversampling is not done as often as it probably should on archival scans. That actually surprises me. For example, if you're going to release something in 4K or UHD, 3840 by 2160, um, it would seem like imperative to me that she get every single pixel that ends up as one of those 3840 pixels isn't essentially underscanned, right? Because if you're scanning at that exact resolution, you're only using, what, like 60 to 70% of that image area? So you're basically ending yeah. up, you're not actually getting a true UHD image or 4K image, in quotes. Um, you're getting something much lower, needlessly blown up, basically. That's true. But then you've got tons of UHD titles like Blade Runner 2049 was shown in Arri Alexa at 2.8K, and now they're blowing it up to UHD yeah. specs. So, I mean, you've got cases like that where they're essentially doing an HD to UHD blow up and then putting that out on the market as true UHD, and it's like not. Mad Max Fury, Fury Road, I believe, was shot in 2.8K, then the, but the whole post pipeline was, was 2K. Um, they mm -hmm. downscaled, then they released that UHD, and there's no little asterisk on the box saying this is basically a Blu-ray blown up. Don't forget the DSLR shots in that movie. <laughs> so that being said, I do think that there are, uh, there are plenty of movies that are shot on film, then transcoded to digital, or scanned to digital, at 4K full aperture, and they're truer UHD outputs than several of the studio titles that are being put out today. I have a specific project question I really, I'm really dying to ask is about the thing. Um, you mentioned you had an act out about the color. Well, you also had a comment about uh, the arrow versus a shout. I had a question for you. Uh, what are your thoughts on both of those transfers? And what issues do you have with the arrow or what issues do you have the, with the shout? Because I'm not yeah, Devin, quite sure. Yeah, talk about that. <laughs> So Arrow did a 4K restoration from the original camera negative that was supervised by both John Carpenter and Dean Cundey. If I'm not correct, uh, Silver Salt Restoration did the cleanup in the UK, and then the color timing was done here in Los Angeles. Probably the two most interesting things about the old shot release um, are that, one, it looks like there's been some like manual de-squeezing done to the anamorphic. Like, everyone's a little bit thinner. Um, and the color, um, and also I mean, the grain structure too, um, in that the, the 4k arrow and new shout have far, I think, superior uh, grain accuracy, at least to the untrained eye. And the old shout, um, has, you know, it looks like some, it was either done on a scanner that, you know, just didn't have the resolution to depicted properly or not properly but you know depicted as accurately as the new one or there was some sharpening done later but um there's some like you know 
high contrast edges have that like characteristic little little mound of uh, of added contrast. M- my first response to the Arrow release was just that, hey, this looks this looks like it was done with newer scanning technology, and the colors look a more like I expect the specific film stock it was shot on to respond, but I have nothing to go off of. Um, it's not like the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly where I've thought it through heavily. Yeah, the Arrow is the one I own, and I and I I just kind of checked out of that, and I'll probably remain relatively checked out until a, a decidedly superior version comes out. <laughs> What's the current controversy over it? Is there a controversy right now? Anyway, Blake, I, uh, this is you're the one who knows things. <laughs> yeah. I I don't know too much. Um, I did about day and a half of additional manual cleanup on uh, Shouts. Uh, 2016, I think it's 2016 release of the thing. Yep. I did some additional work, but I did talk to the colorist uh, at Photochem that worked on it. He had Dean Cundy come in and supervise that transfer. And Dean had told him that during its original theatrical release, he never had the opportunity to come in and color time the film the way um. he wanted to. So he said the film never looked the way he intended, the way he shot it to look like. So... He did come in and the look of the movie, if it looks too blue or looks too warm or too purple, that's the way that Dean Cundy wanted it to look like. So that is his first effort to put it out on home video. Now, I know that Arrow has then said that Carpenter and Cundy both approved the Arrow release. So arguably, that's a definitive release. And if you really want to go all out then get the shout 4k version of it that's even yeah. arguably more definitive definitive um, vest yeah it's always but, interesting to me when at different times um filmmakers uh, contradict themselves as to what like because these two releases look very different well that's exactly the case is this is a case where a cinematographer has just contradicted himself so i guess he didn't take a look at the shout transfer <laughs> or maybe the arrow team pointed out um some issues with it that they thought should be resolved. Those were both transfers that Dean Cundy had approved, even though they looked different. I don't know, Blake, if you know about the original French Connection Blu-ray. I do not. You're gonna you're you're gonna have to you're gonna have to divulge. <laughs> it it is shocking. Um, it's 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 very blue. It's very washed out and desaturated. Um, it looks weird as hell, and it's because William Friedkin went in and took way too strong of a hand on working out. So it's worth looking at the 2009 uh, Fox Blu-ray of that movie because it just looks horrendous. And the reason why I, I'm like that, that alone, whatever. After he did that, he, uh, and, and he was on the record talking about how it was like what he wanted. And there was such blowback um, on that release um, from consumers that uh, he ended up insisting that uh, what he sent off was a perfectly graded transfer. And then somewhere between him doing that and the Blu-ray coming out, the uh, the authoring house messed with it and added all this blue and stuff. And that the 2012 Blu-ray version that he then re-supervised is the actual accurate uh, version of the Blu-ray. And it is a much better looking version of the Blu-ray. Whether it's accurate or not, I can't say. But it's... Um, uh, just another one of these like points in history of like absolutely wild self-contradictions by filmmakers. I wouldn't put it past an authoring house to 
screw up the color of a movie on no 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 i mean he was he was on the rec he was on the record approving of it and and like the specific changes he was taking credit for at the time oh, it was after the, the blue changes he, oh okay yeah yeah yeah, yeah. oh yeah all right <laughs> No. Well, luck- luckily, the digital version I saw a little over a year ago does not have that blue in it. So, yeah. <laughs> the thing that's really apparent is the black crushing and white clipping. Yeah. Um, th- there's like scenes where whole characters like eyes are just black, like literally zero yeah. percent no grain. Yeah. And it's, it's a very, very, very grainy movie. Even for a 70s title, the grain is extremely prominent in that oh, yes. in those low light scenes, as it should be. Yeah. Blake, we've talked a, a good amount, uh, not that there's not room for more, about the visual components of all this. Can you talk a little bit about where audio fits into all these processes? Mm-hmm. Basically, your best audio source nine times out of ten is going to be the uh, mag film audio source. So usually that'll be anywhere from one track to a six track mag. Uh, that you'll then transfer through a mag audio uh, recorder. You could transfer that at, you know, 48 kilohertz or 96 kilohertz or 192. Transfer that into digital files, and then from there you'll go and do uh, some cleanup uh, in either Pro Tools or Isotope RX to remove uh, hiss, uh, remove some of the background noise, crackling, any pops, any dropouts, any issues that you might come across. You'll go in and clean that up and usually it's not as laborious on our end um it's a lot faster to transfer mag we typically transfer it in real time and then uh you could get you could do some global refinements and get a very clean audio transfer um within half a day of work so it's not to the extent of doing a video restoration where you could spend thousands of hours potentially restoring something a lot of the titles i restore for video we usually try to keep the amount of work that we do under 100 hours sometimes we go over that if it's a big title like apocalypse now uh roundabout and american zoetrope spent 2700 hours (laughs) on the video restoration (laughs) for that so that so that's a high end of what it can take but um yeah even on some really beat up titles I've worked on, I've never done more than five hundred five hundred hours of cleanup on it. Good grief! Did they like restore every f- like foot of film that they shot on Apocalypse Now? Uh, three hundred thousand frames of it. Yeah. So they cool. had to restore all the footage for the final cut, the original right. theatrical cut, and the Apocalypse Now redo. Yeah, the Redux. The early, yeah, Redux yeah. that came out and uh, I like Redo better. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think um, I heard. I think I heard the team refer to it as Redo. But <laughs> oh. oh no! Um, <laughs> I want to ask a little bit more about audio because um, we did an episode on the podcast about um, audio revisionism, mm-hmm. and one of the subjects that we brought up was the question of hiss reduction and when it's appropriate and how much is appropriate. Yep. And this is just mostly using my ears without like a direct knowledge of how much hiss is present in the original elements when they're actually struck versus later, how much they degrade or how much hiss is introduced or the generational hiss. I know there's hiss introduced when you add generations, but I don't know exactly how much. 
is does all that play a factor in how much you do hiss reduction and does the question of wiping other detail out of the audio come up when you're doing hiss reduction i'm just curious about like the the fine details of that process yeah it comes up every single time sometimes uh you'll get a clean transfer from mag and there will be relatively little hiss in there as long as you get a clean uh, noise profile, you could go in and do a very, very light touch to it. Whenever we do hiss reduction on a title, we are very careful to check thoroughly throughout the show to make sure that we are not negatively impacting the quality of the dialogue track or the music or the effects, that we're not removing any uh, low-frequency sounds that should be in there or any high frequency sounds so we're very very careful with how we approach that but and i'll say for anyone listening that like of all the titles that i know blake worked on uh that i've listened to i've never had an issue with the uh (laughs) with the audio cleanup on any of them Uh, we we don't try to go to get it to sound absolutely pristine you can go too hard with these tools so again uh, the idea is less is more We do want to remove the hiss as much as possible, but not in a way that's detrimental to the movie. And there have been a couple tracks that have come up where we just can't get a clean noise profile from the mag transfer. It's just better to just leave it untouched. I I have come across some cases where, you know, it's just better not to try to fuss with it and let it be what it is. So that has come up. But yeah, actually, um, Army of Shadows just came in, which brought a question um, I have, um, because uh, this is what me and Will for years ignorantly called the Studio Canal lot, because mm-hmm. we found it just a lot of Studio Canal releases happened to have this specific, very specific look, regardless mm-hmm. of when or where they were shot. So for example, Ron, Army of Shadows, Playtime, th- th- there's, a, there's a ton, a ton, and you know, vast, wide swath of like when those were shot and by whom. And yet they all have this very peculiar look, which is like yellow highlights, kind of teal shadows in a very kind of low saturation way um, that a lot of people call it the teal and orange look, but I don't think it's quite that. It's not like Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol or whatever. It's a very kind of matte. It And again, I, I say it feels modern, even though I know that's not quite right. But um, all these films share a specific look, even though like... For example, their previous home video releases all looked wildly divergent. And I'm wondering, is this just a certain film stock tradition that is being more accurately represent, represented? Or is it like a popular tick of a certain color grading house? Um, do those ticks even exist? I don't know. It's it's the uh, latter. It's a restoration company in Italy. I might be pronouncing it incorrectly, but L'Imagine Ritrovata. Um, mm-hmm. They're based out of Bologna, Italy. They've done a lot of high-profile restorations of major titles for Studio Canal and for some other labels. And I think one of them was uh, the Tree of Wooden Clogs that they did for Criterion. And mm-hmm. from what I've seen, that yellow highlight teal shadows look is entirely their thing. Yes. I don't know what happens if they've got somebody that comes in and supervises it and then they output it with some sort of transformation LUT that causes it to look like shit. (laughs) I don't know what happens or if they're grading it under fluorescent light. I 
don't know what the situation is and why all their movies look like that, but... Tree of Wooden Clogs is a perfect example. I just looked it up. I've never seen that film. I, I, yeah. I only know it as a Seinfeld joke. <laughs> That's exactly it. We'll put an image in our show notes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I should, we should put an image of all the films we talked about, and we're like, can you tell which film is which? Oh. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's really interesting to know. I'm gonna look. I'm gonna research the heck out of that Italian film restoration house, and, because um, it is such a thing, and I find it gets so often misattributed to like, oh, they just want to be trendy, or you know, this is just Hollywood stepping in, whatever. But it's definitely a thing. Oh, it's a thing. You mentioned early on vinegar syndrome. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what vinegar syndrome is and what the vinegar vault is as an example of like the kind of stuff you have to do? <laughs> vinegar syndrome is essentially affecting acetate-based film. And what it is is the acetate base is starting to degrade over time, usually due to improper storage. What happens is uh, you, you start smelling acetic acid just through chemical decay you're smelling acetic acid on the film, so it smells like vinegar. So that's why it's called vinegar syndrome. I think it's the National Preservation Society. Uh, Editor's note, Blake later informed us that this is the Image Permanence Institute. Uh, sells these uh, acetate uh, deterioration strips that are blue in color, and you can put it in a can of film, leave it there for 24 hours, come back, and if it's changed a certain color... Um, you could see where it is in that process. If it has sort of a teal cyan color to it, then it's early onset vinegar, but it's fine. It's in pretty good shape. If it looks green, um, then the uh, vinegar syndrome, it's no longer early onset. It's quite advanced, so you need to start working very quickly on getting a preservation copy of the movie because it's not going to last very longer maybe a few years, and then by the point it's progressed to yellow on that strip, then it's in uh, full um, advanced deterioration, and uh, the print either needs to be destroyed or it needs to be frozen. So, hmm. wow. acetate film, from my experience, um, can start with uh, early onset vinegar syndrome as soon as 15 years even after being in a pretty decent storage facility. Um, most film that is 30 to 40 years old or older already has vinegar syndrome. Prints are more susceptible to it than negatives. Negatives are a bit more durable, but they all suffer from it. So uh, you got to take good care of your film, and that means uh, keeping it in uh, cold storage, uh, preferably in frozen storage is the best uh, if it's 32 degrees uh, Fahrenheit or zero degrees Celsius you can also you know keep it in a colder vault which is I guess in the 50s Fahrenheit or I don't know how this converts for your Canadian <laughs> audience <laughs> but uh, you know somewhere around 10 to 15 centigrade yeah you want to keep it in cold storage relative humidity should be between 35 to 55 degrees uh, or 35 to 55% relative humidity. So you don't want to um, have it in a very humid room. Once you have it in a humid environment, that's how you start getting mold and other issues that just start popping up on the film very quickly. So, you know, film's like an old bottle of wine. It needs to be maintained under the proper conditions for long periods of time. 
And when you do want to transfer it, you need to acclimate it to room temperatures, then bring it out, transfer it, and get it back into a vault as soon as possible. Yeah, studios do a very good job with their elements. The Academy Archive is the best at doing this kind of work. Some of the universities like UCLA, they do a great job with their preservation, but then there are some studios and some facilities that hold film where they could be doing a much better job. This raises actually a question that has begun to burn for me, which is (laughs) what is the future as far as preserving these elements go? I mean, like both what you think it should be and what you think it realistically will be. I mean, does this all end and, you know, like we just transfer everything off of film cans that we can and then just accept that those are going to be those are going to decay and not be useful anymore? Is it is do you think that uh, long term on film, like the actual 35 millimeter, 60 millimeter, et cetera, preservation is viable and realistic and more useful? What What's what's your take on that? Film doesn't last forever, um, but it is still the best way of uh, storing our international culture of uh, the film medium. So you do need to continue efforts to preserve on film. That's why many titles still are shot digitally, and then they do a film out as an archival preservation method. And sometimes that's used to create new transfers. Yeah, you, you definitely have to make efforts to preserve film under the right conditions. It can be preserved for decades, but the situation right now is not as ideal as it should be. Um, it's very, very costly to uh, preserve film properly under the right conditions. So a lot of films are just in a constant state of decay. And I've come, I haven't lost a film yet, but I've come very close in assessing multiple elements or whatever elements are available and uh, have come very, very close to not even having a transfer of a movie available. What's the closest you've come? There was one uh, title that I worked on, can't say the name, but we couldn't find uh, an audio source for it, and then we did finally find the original mag for it, the three-track mag, but it was in a cardboard box that was unlabeled, and all the film was stacked on top of one another. It wasn't properly stored in cans. So that was one situation where we came very close. Another title I worked on for um, one of our labels that was licensed from one studio, the mag was completely deteriorated. It had rust all over it. It had to be sent out to uh, Deluxe Audio to see if they could salvage it. Um, And we had to use a digibeta source as the audio source rather than transferring from film. So in some cases, it might just be that some tape source, which will degrade in a matter of years is the only master left, um, which in that case, they need to make a dub copy of that. Yeah, it's, uh, there have been a couple of close calls. It's not, it's not a great situation. Mag is definitely in a worse state than the film picture elements itself. All these studios and all these different facilities take much better care of picture elements, especially original negative. So the original negatives are usually in great condition, but any prints, these studios 
usually have very, very few prints, if any, remaining. Um, sometimes mm -hmm. the protection copies are beat to hell and they need a new transfer from the original negative. And then, yeah, the audio sources are in a wide and varied state of disarray from either, you know, having enough elements available to be able to get a very good transfer or only having one element available and not being in great shape. Everything from DOS boot to the third man. Yeah. People tend to care more about video than they do audio. And this has been a recurring theme in uh, in Will and I's journeys through films new and old. Everything from cheaping out on the boom operator on set to not preserving the the, the elements 100 years later. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, Will, I'm so sorry you're the sound person. <laughs> <Two of> eh. <laughs> I, I, I don't envy that position. What misconceptions or misunderstandings uh, surrounding film preservation and home video re-releases are there? And are there any elements you wish people paid more attention to? That's a tough question to answer. I mean, could you elaborate a little bit on what misconceptions you think you might be seeing? One thing I, I see is a lot of people just don't flat out don't understand how films are transferred and the art that goes into that, right? Like mm. why you want to why you want to oversample for example um yeah. for example the creative process behind color correction right for example one of my least favorite misconceptions is the idea that somehow a like a like i, I bring up the big lebowski a lot about this because i was so frustrated by it um so you know in the 90s or till the mid 2000s um the only version available the big lebowski was a dvd and then a blu-ray and an hd dvd from that same transfer that were horrible um they white balanced every single shot in the movie so that the whole thing looked very antiseptic saw it in 35 mil it's this beautiful color bonanza just every single location has a consistent color palette right the bowling alley is actually kind of warm uh the the exteriors are often very blue um and then the 4k blu-ray comes out people immediately complain that it doesn't look like the old dvds and they're saying that oh they're just going with the trendy look even though that this matched the 35 print we saw perfectly at least our memory and we saw them pretty close together so misconceptions like that right like how the the career process within you know film restoration and uh the ways in which people receive this content in in manners that betray a, i think a fundamental misunderstanding of what the goals of film preservation are anyways that's i kind of ranted there no that's yeah, what okay. do you have to say about that blake <laughs> <laughs> i mean yeah this is tough because it's hard to say Home video enthusiasts only really have the, most of them don't have a film print to reference and say, all right, I know this is exactly the way it should look like because I've got an IB Tech print here in my garage with a film projector <laughs> and I can just show it to you and let you know this is the way it's supposed to look. Nobody has that. So all these home video enthusiasts have the prior releases to go off as their textbook example of this is the way the movie should look like. So when you put something out that's very different, of course people are going to say, wow, well, that's not what I was expecting. I don't think I'd like that. So that's why it's very important to get creative involved in these situations. I will say as a label that, or as a company that works for labels that very often do not get the opportunity to get creative input on it. We only have very often those home video releases to go off of ourselves. So if something looks inherently wrong in it, um, we'll go ahead and address that. And we will take uh, 
any notes we have from consultants. And if there is a release print available and accessible to us, then we will absolutely take a look at it. We'll do a scan of it, um, reference it, and see what that has to provide us in the color grade. But yeah, very often we have these home video releases to go off of ourselves. So sometimes it's just intuition and your gut that helps guide you. We've done a lot of transfers from film to digital, and we have a process that we go through. So you can kind of feel how the film wants to go. I mean, you can mm. lower the blacks, you can raise the highlights, adjust for skin tones, and yeah, you could try to do a neutral look on it, and sometimes that's wrong, and I, you know, Criterion will even admit that sometimes they get it wrong as well because they don't have uh, a proper print to reference or uh, creative in there. So that does happen, but we always have good intentions with every release that we try to put out on behalf of uh, any label that we do work for. So there's no ill will behind it. <laughs> No, uh, you're not trying to ruin any, uh, no. any cultural history. We're, no, no. We're, well, that's, we're not, I'm glad we we're, cleared that up, Blake. Yeah, we're, we're, we're not trying oh. to put our own stamp on it like uh, like that company in Bologna does with their... Uh, <laughs> Uh, to circle back to that <laughs> yeah that's kind of the intentionality is what i always get is, is one of the things i find interesting is that i think a lot of the time i see pe people assume that they're trying to somehow revise the film to be more up to date or something you know feel more modern um i think occasionally that's true um you know i think blade runner the ridley scott one the final cut of that clearly was an attempt to revise it to feel a bit more contemporary and i i think it's beautiful actually that new version uh, and i'm glad they included the previous versions but yes it's so often it's just different interpretations of what should be done many of which are valid if contradictory so it's uh, there's no right answer often i i did have a question for both of you um, yeah are there uh, any movies in particular that you think really deserve uh, restoration that have the never magnificent been properly Ambersons. restored. <laughs> well, uh, I I think I I thought Criterion did a really nice job putting out what they had, but I, I, I think um, no, I think no, no, what, the original Will's issue is more with no. Robert Wise <laughs> in 1943 well, and what he did. We're, we're talking about stuff that's still available, not uh, not missing film footage somewhere in the rainforest <laughs> in Brazil. You gotta aim high, Blake. Do Four uh, Devils. Honestly, like, most of mine are, like, Ernst Lubitsch movies. Up until last week, I would have said Trap Around the Corner, but that just got a release on Christmas. Yay. Um, so The Merry Widow, um, Student Prince of Old Heidelberg. There's a, a few more that I would just... I, especially The Merry Widow. That's one of those beautiful films ever. And that, you know, it's dire. It's a beautiful movie. Anyways, that's my rant. Yeah. Uh, some of my... The ones I would love to see updated might be outside your... Um, outside the normal sweep of the labels that you work with. Like, there's a lot of silent films, for example. Like, I'd love to see Evgeny Bauer's films updated and released. Uh, well, one, I, I just binge-watched almost every Eric Romer film, and um, about half... He has a funny thing where a lot of his films, his intended framing was Academy Ratio, 137, mm -hmm. but European cinemas could only show 166 during, like, the 80s, for example, and a lot of the new restorations, you'll have two versions. A pretty crappy restoration, well, dated restoration, of, like, the four by three version and then a much better restoration of a much worse framing. So I, I want, I want to see all those in uh, proper 4k scans with loving color correction and uh, 
his intended framing or his preferred yeah. framing. Actually. There's a lot of Soviet animation I'd love to see uh, but, uh, properly, like uh, like the Soviet um, Winnie the Pooh cartoons, for example, <laughs> or um, in like uh, honestly, like my 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 holy grail of like I would love to see this properly scanned and and released uh, <laughs> uh, with subtitles for the original audio track is the treasure planet not the disney film but the bulgarian animated uh film which is like i i i'm sure that's in like legal rights hell but it's like mickey mouse appears illegally at the end of that movie Um, yeah i feel like if if that movie could get a home video release i just feel like it would just be this like instant massive cult thing but right now it just like floats around in bootlegs and stuff but it's an incredible movie and i'm not ashamed to say i have a bootleg copy of it because there's literally no other way to watch it our biggest answer will always be our biggest answer was napoleon um the abel Gantz film mm-hmm. and um because will dragged me to, to san francisco once to watch it in 2012 um wow with carl davis composing kevin brownlow in attendance we talked to him afterwards carl davis conducted a live orchestra for six hours yeah and um and it was the best movie I've ever seen in the cinema. And eventually it got a home video release, a very limited BFI release that it's no, not available in North America. But um, so, did, so did they have three projectors running simultaneously? Yes, to show? sure. <laughs> oh, my. And, and this, was not a, this, was not, this was before they had scanned it digitally. They actually had not done the digital restoration. So it was all 35 mil um, photochemical rest- restoration. And Wow. Um, their digital restoration is cleaner, but this was just... Oh, it was special. Awe-inspiring. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. yeah, there was like one gripe I had about the entire presentation. It it was shot in a different frame rate than the rest of the film, the first reel or two. And uh, so they accounted for that with um, some weird shutter stuff they did on the projector. Yeah, and, and that was uh, where the intertitles, they put actually an ND filter in front of the lens manually during those and it looked w- weird. Anyways. <laughs> yeah, so I brought that arcane. up with... Uh, I brought that up with... Um, Kevin afterwards and uh, he agreed and he said yes it didn't it didn't look quite look right did it we might change that for tomorrow <laughs> <laughs> there's a decent amount of like um, um, early mid 2000s films they're kind of in uh, uh, early digital scan hell yeah right mm. where the scans are like just good enough that you can put them on a blu-ray and people are going all right but they're not good enough <laughs> um, uh, oh, birth! I would, I would love to see birth, birth. That's that's my pick. That's my actual pick. That like I feel like there's a hope in hell of something happening with. But birth from two thousand four. Oh, the N- Nicole Kidman. Uh, yeah, God, the Jonathan yeah. Glazer one. Jonathan yeah. Glazer, yeah. And yeah. I mean, everyone loves Under the Skin these days. So I, I love Under the Skin. No, I, I thought birth was a little weird, but you're right. It is. It is. <laughs> you're not wrong. We're all but in yeah. agreement about birth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For me, I really do want Warner Brothers to put out uh, Kim Russell's The Devils. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, you, know, you can only get bootlegs on, uh, I think, in UK. I went to the uh, American Cinematheque here in Los Angeles, and they did a screening of it, but all they had was a SD or a 720p uh, digibeta transfer or something like that of, uh, mm. of the movie that they projected. They didn't have a film print accessible, so I have no idea what state the elements are in, but I'm, I remain hopeful that you know they'll be able to restore that and put that one out. There definitely has been a lot of... Uh, requests 
for uh, Warner to restore that. Yeah. Um, and another one I'd really love to see is Elaine May's The Heartbreak Kid. I was about oh, to bring yes. that up. I was yes. literally about to interrupt you to bring that yes. up. Um, apparently yeah. it's like owned by a pharmaceutical company. <laughs> and uh, they won't give up the rights. Um, oh, well, yeah. there you go. Because <laughs> who shot Heartbreak Kid again? I, I know It was is, Owen Roisman who did uh, Pelham and French Connection. Yeah, like, because uh, when I saw, like, the new Kino Blu-ray of Pelham 1, 2, 3, it was just such an enormous improvement over any previous version of the film uh, visually and made me really think, like, oh, man, I need to watch more great Owen Roisman Blu-rays and uh, there's just not a lot. <laughs> but yeah, Heartbreak Beautiful Kid is only film. available on the worst DVD I've ever saw. <laughs> and yeah. it's, uh, it's a huge shame. Yeah, and it's like a hundred bucks if you want to purchase that DVD. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I saw a film print of it uh, last year at UCLA and it was, uh, it was great. But even the print itself was a bit faded. So mm. it's doomed. Like, uh, it needs some love. Yeah. Don't let the vinegar get to it. You don't want pharmaceutical companies to hold the rights <laughs> to your favorite movies because I guarantee you they have no idea what to do with them. Because, okay, so here's the thing. Uh, we, yeah. we never recorded like a, a goodbye with Blake. So it yeah. kind of just ends on a point. So how do we... Thanks for joining us on this one, Blake. We hope all of you out there have enjoyed our discussion. Next week, we're going to discuss the nature of reality in cinema with none other than director of films such as Love and Friendship, Damsels in Distress, and The Last Days of Disco, Witt Stillman. Oh boy. Paige Smith is our associate producer. I hope you enjoyed listening today, folks. And if you did, how about you leave us a rating and review on your podcast service of choice? You can help keep the show going at patreon.com slash filmformally and find us on social media on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at filmformally. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the unceded territory of the indigenous nations of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. <laughs>